Just before we get into this episode of Texting, I just wanted to give you a little bit of background about Pete Michaud and why this is such an interesting episode to listen to. So at the age of seven, Pete was playing in a driveway and a horrible accident happened. A car was reversing out and it actually ran him over. In fact, it was an Isuzu trooper that actually ran over his head and crushed his skull. He died and was taken to hospital and the doctors then revived him, brought him back to life. For the next 13 years, he worked with a surgeon who much of that time worked pro bono, rebuilding Pete's skull and face. And at that age of seven, Pete had the kind of realization that someone may have when they're 45 and they get cancer. And they realize that life really is for living. But Pete had that at seven. So Pete, who's now 25, is married with two kids and is financially free. And he puts his good fortune down to this realization that he had when he was seven. Another interesting thing about Pete is that he majored in statistics. So a combination of statistics, no fear, and really going for what he wanted is how he retired by the age of 25. And that's what this interview is about. Welcome to Texting 38, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And today we have a special guest with us, Pete Michaud, the chameleon of tech, who started his online career as Ken Sharp. Uh, a lot like David Bowie has had an alter ego, Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> <laughs> um, but more recently, um, he's actually done extremely well for himself and retired at the age of 25. Um, Jason, I know that you found Pete Michaud via his essay, so maybe you'd like to do a little bit more of an intro there. Yeah, so I I I guess uh, the the episode, the essay that caught my attention um, was how I retired at age twenty five. But after after reading it, I realized that I had read almost all of his essays because they almost all of them had appeared on the front page of Hacker News at one point or another, right? Or at least the the at least the uh, the more recent ones. And uh, and I realized they were all really interesting. And uh, that's why I thought it'd be a good idea to get uh, Pete on the show and and talk a little more with him about it. Um, so. So for starters, Pete, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on you know who you are and what you do and everything? Um, because from what from our perspective, I mean, at least from my I guess from my point of view, uh, you are an essayist. Right? Mm. <laughs> I mean, you write you write a bunch of stuff that shows up on Hacker News. Yeah. You have some kind of a background in software development, but beyond that, I don't know too much about you. Well, it's a difficult question, really, because I have I guess Justin put it correctly when he said that I'm kind of a chameleon. I don't like pigeonholing myself too much, but yes, I have had a career in software development and um, I've worked for big companies and tiny companies and medium-sized companies in, in that capacity as developer and architect also. Uh, and what I realized, I guess, about a year ago is that despite uh, having done that and despite being pretty good at it, I I never really intended to do that, and I didn't really enjoy it that much because the reality is that when you're a developer, most of your time isn't spent on development. Most of your time is spent with nonsense, with politics and with specs and dealing with clients, both internal and external and all that. So I, I kind of stopped doing that. That's certainly the case in, in, those, in the large kind of companies that you're talking about, definitely. Right, right, and and even in smaller companies. When I was when I was eighteen, I I founded with a partner. Uh, I founded a sort of a boutique development company called Harbor Blue Group, and um, we we were just 
kind of bogged down with small clients that right. you know wanted the world and didn't really want to pay for it. And most of my time was spent dealing with uh, clients and dealing with uh, subcontractors that weren't really doing what they were supposed to do. And, and it, I mean, it took a lot of the joy out of the, the creativity of programming, which is what programming is, is to me, which, yeah. I, which is what I want it to be. So, so I stopped. I stopped and I began doing things more for uh, the love of doing them. And one of the things that I've always loved doing is writing I can't say I've, I've always been particularly good at it, but I've always had a passion for it, so I've done it a lot. And I think I've you know, gotten enough practice to start making you know, cogent points when, right. I, when I can muster the uh, creative energy to do so. So you, you've been recently been doing writing quite a number of these essays. I mean, I, I was kind of looking through them, and, and there are a lot of them are pretty, um, I don't know, they're, they're not just commentary on like, you know, what's the latest, you know, programming language trick or something. I mean, you're really putting together some ideas and writing some in-depth stuff. Um, right. So it, it kind of reminds me of, I guess, what Paul Graham tries to do, which is he has things he's thinking about and really spends some time on trying to figure out what he's thinking and puts it down on paper. And, uh, and you know, essentially he's an essayist. He's except, not just a blogger. Except that Pete seems to have almost a spiritual bent to some of the stuff that he writes, which is kind of I, I interesting. Think- I think that's pretty accurate, actually. And, and I mean, it's complex. There's, um, I have problems with the concept. There, there are essays to this effect, too. But I have problems with the concept of supernatural as such. Right. But uh, something that I've always thought a lot about is what are the, uh, the, the deeper realities that our, that our limited perception can't, can't really fathom. And, and I guess even, even the more mundane or more grounded essays that I write have to do with sort of looking behind the curtain and seeing the inner machinations of, of the structures that we interact with on a day-to-day basis, both, you know, like our, our brains, which are complicated in our, in our social structures and our, our businesses and our motivations and, and all that stuff. They're, they're quite complicated in the same sense that, um, the universe is complicated in terms of physics and that, that sort of thing. So it's kind of a unifying factor. It seems to me that you're interested in, in almost hacking the human psyche, a lot like NLP. Are you familiar with the NLP concept? Yeah. Yes. Neurolinguistic programming, yeah. 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 So that this, this is the type of thing that's, that from, from your essays, it seems to me that really interests you. And then you, with, with those psyche hacks, it's about improving one's life, improving one's wealth or... I guess desires as well. Um, I mean, some right. some of those essays are very interesting. Um, yeah, like right. what fear and freedom was a lot about that, right? You talk about things that cause us problems and uh, sunk cost fallacy, loss aversion bias, um, which are things that Jess and I talk about periodically because they definitely affect, say, doing a startup or launching software. All these sort of uh, cognitive biases that we have that kind of screw with our rational ability to act rationally. Right, right. And, and I guess the, the core difficulty is identifying what you want to be doing in the first place and what you should be doing, I guess, in an ethical sense. Um, and, and then even if you've figured out, if you think you've figured out that, how do you, how do you go about um, making that happen? And you've got all, all this whole quagmire of, of bugs, essentially, in your brain that kind of prevent you from, 
from breaking out and doing the things that you actually want to do and sort of uh, maybe not ensure, but, but push you toward doing, living a life that has been prescribed to you implicitly by, by your environment. And, and I want to kind of break people out of that. So before we get too, too deep on that angle, I, one thing I'd like to maybe get started with is the essay, How I Retired at Age 25, because I think okay. that story might sort of give, um, I guess, sort of an anchor to all these other ideas. Um, yeah. Because it seems to me that 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 ability that your ability to succeed and get and sort of reach a financial independence and gain control of your life in that way um, sort of gave you the confidence and also sort of an experiential background to sort of write down some of these ideas. Well, not um, only that, but the time also. I, I've I've been thinking about starting my site with all the essays on it for years, and I just never have had. The, the creative energy to do everything that I was doing and that. So it's another aspect. So yeah, so tell us about that. So why don't you tell us a story um, and uh, then we'll go from there. The story of my retirement? Yeah, how did it go? I mean, it, it, in the essay, you talk a little bit about uh, how you'd always thought that success for you or gain, reaching sort of a financial independence would be through building some kind of amazingly cool software and, and executing it and maybe flipping it or, or whatever. And then, right. but that it didn't turn out to work that way at all, that it was actually something more mundane and more almost repeatable than you had originally thought. Right. Exactly. I, I had this, I had this concept even, even right up until months after Ken Sharp, which just a little background. I know we've mentioned Ken Sharp. Ken Sharp was a pseudonym of mine when I went to work as an architect for a medium-sized software company, I knew that my, my basic plan was to get into the company, which I knew had problems, and fix the company in order to make it saleable so that there could be a big exit. And, and at some point in there, I wanted to get in on that big exit. And, and that was my plan. And in retrospect, it was a, it was a pretty dumb plan, but that's, that's what was going on in my mind. And so I, I blogged about it. And that was always kind of my, uh, my outlook. I, I knew that, for example, at that time, I wanted $2 million in the bank because I figured $2 million was basically enough to live on without touching the principal if I lived very modestly. So that was sort of the, the benchmark of success that I wanted to achieve. And I'd always, like you said, approached it as though I needed to hit a home run a fast home run. I, I, my, my time horizon was, was 25 originally starting out when I was 18 saying, listen, I, I, to myself, I want to be able to do whatever it is that I want to do by the time I'm 25. And if I don't do that, then I, I will have, you know, <laughs> I will have let myself down and failed. And, and my goal, be, I guess, because and that's that's a pretty high bar. Because even the most aggressive people are usually like, you know, if I, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm thirty, and that even sometimes sounds kind of ridiculously optimistic. But twenty-five, that's pretty. Yeah, aggressive. I'm, I'm I'm a pretty uh, I'm a pretty ridiculously optimistic person, and I right, guess well, I like it. I like well, it. <laughs> to be to be honest, that's one of the one of the most important things of being an entrepreneur is to be stupidly optimistic. Exactly. Just keep keep that naivety. It's yeah. it's. It's important because otherwise you never get started. You get, you start thinking about the numbers and the probabilities, and you just give up. But, 
but that's the th- I mean I guess what I learned is that that those home runs they they seem to happen more often than they really do and that's a that's another bias and and it's I think actually there's a technical term and I think it's availability bias but but the bias is basically that because maybe I'm maybe I'm alone in this but I think myself and you and and people listening to this consume media that ha- all around them there there are all these twitters and facebooks and zuckerbergs and and you know farmvilles and all these hyper successful ventures and it seems like more more ventures than not create these superstar um 37 signal type cinderella stories yeah. that you start from nothing and all of a sudden overnight you're you're great and everyone knows about you but that's not only not accurate for most of the thing for most of the ventures that I just mentioned, even though that's kind of the mythology around them, but it's not it's not at all accurate for the general for the general marketplace for for most people who start stuff. You've never heard of them, and you never will hear of them, because hitting it out of the park is a a combination of you know skill, um, and talent and 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 a network and a lot of luck. So, well, you're certainly right about the fact that there are, I mean, hundreds of thousands of internet millionaires that we have no idea about who, who, um, make money through releasing content, content based membership sites or various different affiliate systems and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, well, it's not even that, but just even software development, even a lot of very successful web apps and software companies are exactly like central desktop, for example, we were talking to recently. I mean, they're much more successful than, than, Quite a number of the, I guess, sort of web famous entrepreneurs, right? And they did it without. They did it primarily without any type of investment, and um, yeah, and they're very, very successful. And yeah. uh, but they're a lot. I mean, you could even have less success than them. I mean, they have what thirty or so employees or whatever it is that they, right. you know, actually fund off revenue. So you can be significantly less, uh, less profitable than they are. And still be very successful, but no, yeah, you're right. Nobody's going to hear of any. You're not going to hear of these people. They're not going to be interviewed on shows or written about in TechCrunch or whatever. So exactly. So I get what I started thinking about that and thinking because I am interested in things like biases and and brain hacks. I started really getting comfortable with the idea that my that my notion that I was going to hit some kind of home run somehow and have a big exit was not not necessarily i mean obviously it happens but it's not necessarily realistic and it's not necessarily the easiest way to to go about what i wanted which which wasn't actually 2 million dollars in the bank it was actually uh freedom it was actually the the cash flow to organize my life however i want to which i have achieved now and it, it was very it was very mundane. It was starting starting content blogs and uh, identifying niches that that didn't either didn't have much in them or what was there was scammy or incorrect or or what have you. And and so just addressing that and feeling my way along into you know self published books and that sort of thing. Uh, it turned out to be it turned out to be pretty easy. And a process that didn't require a home run, that doesn't require a big wig venture capital firm to notice you or, or anything like that. It just it just required a little patience and 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 some some research. 
So um, okay, so well, you, you, let's hear the actual specific story. of What happened? Your 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 wife was writing a book about what was it reactive hypoglycemia or something? Is that right? Right, reactive hypoglycemia. Right. Because she suffered from that, and she wanted to write. She was doing some research, and she decided just to write it down and maybe she'd be able to share it with some people on the web. Was that it? Uh, yeah, essentially, she. It, it actually didn't happen in that order. She had been researching it for her own purposes. Had noticed that all the information or most of the information out there was crap, mm-hmm. and then decided I'm going to start a blog and try to make money with it. And she doesn't have a background in technology, but she does have a background in writing, and she's also an academic. She she teaches math at a local university here, and. Um, that means that she has uh, training to read and also access to academic databases. So instead of relying on Google Foo to figure out what's right and what's wrong, you know, in terms of what's out there about reactive hypoglycemia, she was able to gather all the all the primary sources and really f- figure out what what we knew and what we didn't know. And that's how it started. And that was in so, a blog format is what she started yep. with? That's it. Yeah, it's still up. It's reactivehypoglycemia.info. What's the okay. uh, primary uh, revenue driver? Is it the AdSense or is it the sales of the ebook? Definitely the books. Definitely the books. We, we have a, a, a dashboard that I have sort of created over the last six months or so. And, and 80% of our revenue comes from books. And, and in that 80% is both ebooks that we sell directly and um, and Amazon also self-published books on Amazon. I see. So you're, you're self-publishing books on Amazon. Correct. And are these, Correct. these are eBooks or are these, uh, actual paper books or either or, or how, what? Bo- or both. It, it, we have, we have, uh, we have, a. let me think. We have a couple books that are both. We have some books that are only on Amazon and we have, I believe one book no, I take that back. Now all our books are both on Amazon. All all our ebooks are also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble also. I, I can really understand why people buy those books. I mean, for example, uh recently I I suffered from some bad uh, acid reflux, right? And I was mm-hmm. Googling about it. And y- you'll see these ads on the side that say, Well, check out the our natural cure to acid reflux, and then you'll go to the site and it will give you information and say, Look, you know, you don't need to go to a doctor, we'll just tell you how to eat differently. Um, right. We've got some good information, and the the ebook's going to cost I don't know twenty bucks or something like that. Sure. Um, you know when you have when you have an issue like that, and you know it's just a, a twenty buck gamble. It's easy for me to make the decision to just buy that book. So right. I can I can really see how that works. Yeah, and and that's actually you touched on something that's important. We we weren't this analytical about it when we first began. Like I said, reactive hypoglycemia just sort of fell into our lap. But one thing that we've noticed about the books that have sold well and the books that haven't is uh, how desperate people are t- for the information. So with acid reflux, you, you're in pain, you need a solution, you need it sooner rather than later. And so maybe maybe you're compelled to, to buy it. But, but if you're not desperate for the information, then you think, well, I'll just keep Googling it. So um, for, there's, a, there's an, a book that we have called Tietz's Syndrome. And uh, that's one that that's pretty popular, and the reason is that Tietz's syndrome is a it's it's a type of arthritis that occurs in the in the rib cage, and it's excruciatingly painful, especially at first. It's 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 from a virus primarily, and if you catch it, you feel like you're having a heart attack for about three weeks, 
and then it, oh. it lasts it lasts essentially forever after that it gets better and better but you still have it still flares up and people are desperate because they're in this excruciating pain and it's not a well-known disorder so doctors don't don't really have much information for you unless you know exactly the right doctor to go to so we have this book and and we explain the symptoms and say we have the answer. We we know we know what to do about it, and it's true. And the and the answer that we that we give really works. And and you know, one I I want to throw this in here. One thing that people kind of I get questions a lot when I'm just talking uh, to people online about this is people don't understand why someone would purchase a book when most of the information from the book is on a site on your site. So in in the case of Tietz's syndrome, most of the information in the book. In terms of what the cure is and what the diet should be and all and all that information is on the site and you don't need to pay for it. Um, I I think people who ask me that don't really understand the value of that that customers put in compiling the information and and having it in a format that they can grab anytime and is organized in a concise way that doesn't. There's no you don't you don't have um multiple sites all over google of variable quality competing to tell you contradictory things you have you have a, a source of information that's in your hands you put on your bookshelf you can grab it whenever you're in pain to or or, or whenever you're making a plan to stop being in pain and it's there and and people find a lot of comfort in that and and we don't hide the fact that the information's most of the information is on the site it, it, that's not really what we're selling well, you know, it's it's funny because I, I think I heard a quote recently. I can't remember I read this or heard it. They said that, you know, when they're talking about newspapers, and they said people never paid for information. They paid for distribution. Exactly. So, and, and, and not only sense, that, but edit, edit, ed, editorial control also, sort of okay. a filter. Sort of in right. the same sense that Hacker News is a filter for people who are interested in, in, in programming and startup culture. We kind of rely on the community to tell us what's important it's it's the same thing where we're our customers rely on us to tell us what's important about whatever the niche is like Tietz's syndrome or reactive hypoglycemia whatever the case is right. okay well let's let's get back to the story because i think i think the story how it evolved <laughs> is is really uh, illustrative of 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 a lot of things and we're i think we're kind of jumping ahead and talking a, a little bit about uh, why it worked but let's just see how it became so so your wife started doing research, wanted to start a blog, and then what happened? Well, I, I just, first I set it up for, because I'm, I have, I'm a programmer with specializing in the web, so it's no problem for me to set up a blog. I set it up, but it wasn't something that I was really involved intimately with. Uh, I, you know, I look, I, look over her, uh, I look over her work, her articles for typos and that sort of thing, and <clears throat> sort of keep the blog up to date. But meanwhile, I'm I'm working on a, a contract, a programming contract that's that's paying the bills, and and she's making, you know, two or three figures a month, maybe a hundred dollars or or two fifty or, or or what have you. So it's not really something that I'm paying close attention to. I'm hopeful for, and she's she's having a good time doing it. But right, uh, because of you know my mindset was in where's where's the next home run coming from? Where's the next deal coming from? I'm not even thinking about. Whether whether these blogs can make me you know independently wealthy, it's not right. even it's not even on my radar. So 
essentially what happened is she's she's growing them and 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 she's doing pretty well at it and one day as i'm thinking about i i like i said i have this contract i'm working from home it's it's very cushy contract but i hate it and and i guess the reason i hate it is that um i felt like it wasn't going anywhere um when i took it i i expected it was a very very small company and i expected maybe the company would uh would take off again my the whole mythology about about a stratospheric rise and and an exit or whatever, and that that wasn't happening. It was and it was clear to me that it wasn't going to happen. So um, I wasn't enjoying it, and I was thinking about quitting, but I was afraid to quit because it's what was paying the bills, and what would I do if I didn't have it? Uh, I'd have to you know eat into savings or go into credit cards eventually, and I and I didn't want to be in that situation. But but my hand was forced one day. Uh, my the my client or boss or whatever. Uh, came to my house with his wife and said, "It's over. Our, our company's about to tank. Um, we're probably going to have to sell our house, and uh, we can't pay you anymore." So that was my uh, that was my two week notice. He said, "We're gonna we we can, we have enough to pay you uh, for for another week, and and that's it, and then we're done." Mm-hmm. So so at that point. <laughs> I I had to do something. I had to think. Okay, so you know, do I go get do I go get another job at Acme Corp? Because I I mean I have a decent resume and I interview well, so I I can I can easily get another job at Acme Corp. Well, how old uh, were you at the time? <clears throat> at this moment, I was twenty four when that how, happened. How old are you now? Twenty five right now. <laughs> wow. Okay. So this is all very recent. Okay. So when you say retired yeah. at 25, you're like, I retired like Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, yeah, a couple months ago. Right. right. Because it's, okay. it's, it's, uh, it's taken care of now. And actually, well, that's a tangent. Let me get to that later, but let me finish the story. So I was considering what to do, what to, uh, what, whether to get a job or whether to try to get in on the ground floor of a startup or or what? And and one day, my my wife Steph said to me, "Listen, I have all these ideas, and I feel, um, and I'm I'm meeting all my goals, but I feel overwhelmed by. It. I I mean, I can't I can't continue at this pace on my own because I I don't really know what I'm doing technically. I need you as an editor. Um, I need you as a as a designer also because I do I do all the um." the typesetting of the books and the, and the covers and what have you. And it would be, it would be much, much better if you came on board and, and did this with me full time and, and I'll, I'll write and research and you optimize and, and market and we'll have a, we'll have a few months runway to do that. And, and if our projections are correct, which they had been so far, then we'll be fine. By the end of our runway, we'll we'll taken off. Well, wait a minute, and, wait a minute. So, you, you, at that time, you're only making what two or three hundred dollars a month, right? On the blogs, correct? It, right. This, so that's this a big. Is, that's a big. So, what was your projection? Where did it end? And and how close were you tracking to your projections and all that kind of thing? What we did was the very first month, the goal was ten dollars, and then our <laughs> thought was. <laughs> Right. I like it. I like it. like in one sense he's he's incredibly ambitious, in another sense he's very like, you know, modest. He's like, look, ten bucks. It's a good start, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's better exactly. than <laughs> Exactly. And and our idea was that it would we could double it every month because if we made ten dollars one month, in, in thirty days, my wife and I are are 
pretty bright. We can come up with a way to make $20 instead of just $10. Right. And after two months of that, we can definitely come up with a way to make $40 instead of just $20 and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so what we did was we created an Excel spreadsheet. It was pretty, pretty low-tech stuff. And we projected. We, we put the, the first month down uh, and we made our goal $10. And uh, we we just projected on outward until it was in outlandish territory, like a million dollars a month or or what have you, and and we knew that it would plateau at some unknown point. But we were confident because we have uh, fairly m- modest living expenses that the plateau would be much further after our living expense threshold, which is about yeah. five thousand dollars. So what what so, part of the country do you live in where five thousand dollars a month is actually livable? For two people, well, they don't have, do you have kids? Uh, yeah, we have two kids. Oh, we wow. have two kids actually, and and five thousand dollars a month is 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 plenty actually. We live in we live in Jacksonville, Florida, and okay. Jacksonville is a very very low cost of living. Right, and and that's something that we um, that's part of the reason we've stayed here, even though it's it's not our favorite place, and neither of us are from here. Um, we stayed here partially because the cost of living is so low. Right, which you hear about Florida all the time being a very inexpensive place. Because in California, five thousand dollars a month for a family right. would be really brutal. That'd be brutal. Right, that's that's the that's poverty line kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. you'd be in trouble. But, but five thousand dollars a month is fine. It's fine. I mean, it's not, not lavish, but it's perfectly fine. It's enough to pay to pay our mortgage and our outlandishly right. high uh, utility bill because our, we live in an old house and it's hot. Um, but it's it's really not it's really not bad at all. So five thousand dollars a month is all is all we needed as a baseline, and anything on top of that is gravy. It's savings, it's travel, it's whatever whatever we want. Right. And right. um, so so up up until that point, Steph had actually been shattering her records. The first month she made like twelve or thirteen bucks, and which was fine. But every month after that, it seemed to it seemed to the multiplier was like five or something. The next month was fifty dollars instead of twenty dollars, and so the the month that she proposed this to me, I, I was at I think I was at like two fifty or she was at two fifty, give or take, and she should have been at like eighty, right? And so we were we were optimistic, maybe naively op- optimistic about it. But hey, I mean, that's part of the that's part of most of the stories here. Um, yeah, well, I'm mean, just saying that's that's, that's uh, that to to take a jump from making, I mean, working as a software consultant, which I imagine you're making a pretty good income, and be sure. able to say, hey, we're going to take this $250 a month uh, deal you got going on here, and we're going to magnify it times you know 20 or 50, right. whatever. I mean, that's right. I mean that's that's taking a big leap there. It I mean, is. it's one thing to say, hey. I will work on this with you for a month or two while I'm looking for another contract. Yeah. But to just say, hey, we're just going to go into this and see what happens. Unless you had, say, six months or a year worth of savings, in which case you're like, ah, you know what? We work on a few months. If it doesn't pick up, if we got plenty of room, I could still look for a job. I, mean, I certainly couldn't convince just, my wife to do that. No, <laughs> I mean, what were you thinking at the time? Were you kind of thinking, we're going to do this? Or were you just thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll help her out. And I, have, I, I know in the back of my mind I'll probably be looking for something in a couple months. I, I was – I was thinking that we were going to do this, and and I know that's crazy from the outside looking in, but I think the the key is that we kept pretty good metrics about what we were selling. Um, for example, what each individual book was selling on Amazon, how much we were making on b- books on average, and what n- niches were doing well and what what niches weren't, and um, I think 
part of the reason for our optimism was that we had a pretty good handle on how we could get not not from two fifty to fifty thousand dollars a month, but from two fifty to five hundred dollars a month. And because we had a good handle on how to on how to get from step to step to step, we were optimistic that that we wouldn't stumble on any given step. Baby steps, meaning, basically. Exactly. Meaning every every month we'd learn something new that would allow us to double our money. And it, we weren't shooting in the dark at that. I mean, at, at that point, we were shooting more in the dark than we are now. But we, we felt like we had some control over uh, the things that were the activities that we could actually do to make money and whether they were long-term investments that would pay off. I, I use the word long, the term long-term um, loosely because what I mean is, say, three months down the road instead of tomorrow. Uh, like a, 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 an ebook sale through Google Checkout, we get the money in two days. So whenever we, we, we have a special inbox that we get all, all our sales data through, and whenever we get, we get a new transaction in there, we know that in two days that, that money will be in our account. So $30 or $40, whatever ebook we sold. So one okay. one one thing just I want to say is yeah. that the 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 use of the term retired is a pretty loose use of that term because truth is yeah. you're not exactly retiring because you are going to keep on trying to build your publishing empire and um, you are going to keep on trying to build revenue but it's just that it's not really really hard work like it might be running a a startup or something like that. Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. I think what what retired in this sense means is that I could stop working. I could just let it be a lifestyle business and, and, and work if you want on it a couple hours a month, which, which I think, and I thought a lot about this before I published my, how I retired at 25, cause I knew it would be kind of inflammatory. And, um, some people would question my, my definition of retire, but I, I really reflected on, you know, what, what constitutes retirement? Is it, is it a large nest egg? Uh, and if so, does that rule out, uh, pensioners and, uh, people who rely on a fixed income from Social Security and and you know Medicaid or or what have you, and I I'd say no, those people are retired because they have enough money to cover their expenses and they don't they don't have to work. And um, and the other aspect is how how secure is this stuff? And from the outside, uh, I you know uh, a few eBooks and some blogs sounds extraordinarily insecure, and I realize that, but I'm. I'm quite confident that it's not because we don't have any single point of failure. Um, our our uh, our websites roll over onto a different server should the first one go down. So web traffic isn't a problem. We get uh, we get a spread of traffic from various search engines, not just Google. We make a substantial portion of our revenue um, through. Well, what I should say is our, our revenue streams are very diversified. So there's no revenue stream that makes more than, say, 20%. Do you so, use um, P- PPC or is it just all uh, organic search? It's, it's, so far, it's all been organic search. And we've, we've been sort of poking around with that and actually talking to um, experts in that, in that field. But no, we haven't done that so far. So nothing that we've done has relied on outlay for advertisement. So, Justin, I would, I would go back and make a, a couple, say a couple things if you don't mind. Um, the first is that your approach to this is kind of like the approach to, to writing software, I think, mm-hmm. which is that you have a sense of what you want this piece of software to be or do. 
And so you just start working on it, right? You can't, you can't spec the whole thing out really. You have it in your head. You say, let's just get from A to B, right? You get that, and I think it almost seems like that framework of software development must have played some part in your framework for how to build this business. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I'm not I'm nodding along as you're saying that because that's yeah. exactly what it's like. And 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 there's a lot of there's a strong element of refactoring in that also. Right. It's a period. It's a it's an iterative approach. Just get something going, learn from what you th- what you get, and then take a step back. And you, you know, and i and, and you're always going to do that, right? You 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 get you do some stuff. You you take you work a couple weeks. And you take a step back. And, okay. So are we making any money? Is this working? Do we see any future in this? And then you just go back and you and give another iteration. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, initially we we had no idea that we were gonna uh, we were going to sell books. We just thought blogs and AdSense and the and the normal thing. But I mean, AdSense never really paid that much for us. And and like I said, about twenty percent is from ads and affiliate links and stuff. But it's it really doesn't add up to that much. It's mostly the books, and we didn't figure that out till maybe month three. So you're right. You're completely right. It's com- it's completely iterative, and I don't know what December is going to look like, but I do have an idea of how I'm going to get from this month, and I'm going to double my money. And and I guess I should throw in there, just to n- not make people too optimistic about this, is that the doubling every month stopped in December, and actually our, our multiplier is more like 1.8. So okay, okay, wait, 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 back up. Um, one point eight, what month to month? Right. Instead of doubling, it's it's whatever we made last he's month. Saying 100, he's saying like one hundred and eighty percent rather than two hundred. That's still that's still that's amazing. I mean, ten percent growth is 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 considered fantastic, <laughs> and you've got you know eighty uh, percent right. growth. So. And and, and right. maybe I missed the first month. Now, what month did you did what your 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 wife had worked on it a couple months or a few months by herself, and then you jumped on. And what month was that? Ah. Uh, I'd have, I'd have to look it up. She started. She started in the. She started in the summer, doing. Okay, so this is like last year. Yeah, yeah, about a, about a little less than a year ago. Yeah. Is is your approach uh, one of multiple revenue trickles, which all combine to make a revenue stream, much like the way that water coming down from the mountain, <laughs> when the snow sure. melts, all kind of creates little trickles and then turns into a river? Is that the yeah, kind of I approach th- that you're taking? I think that's pretty. I think that's pretty accurate. And I mean, that's not to say that we don't identify the trickles that are stronger than the others, or identify the trickles that could be made stronger, because we because we do. But yeah, I think that's a, a big part of uh, the stability of the income is not relying on any one thing, any one product, or any one channel to to provide you know to pay the mortgage, uh, because if 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 something crazy happened, like God descended to the earth and deleted every instance of our statistics textbook, for example, we have one of those, uh, it deleted every instance of it from every computer in the world and it just didn't exist anymore, then it wouldn't matter because we make good money from that, but it wouldn't be crippling to lose that completely. If yeah. Google blacklisted every site that we have all at one time, that wouldn't be crippling to us if if Amazon delisted every single book we have. That wouldn't be crippling to us either. So, yeah. So you have yeah. you have a very you have a very diversified portfolio. So it's almost better than if you had all your money 
that you you sold you sold some co- software company, got a, bu- a couple million dollars stuck in the bank, and it was in some you know secure mutual fund or whatever. Because as we all yeah. know, that stuff can get hit. Or even exactly. you know even if you put it in the bank, it's like you could see hyperinflation. All of a sudden, your your wealth evaporates before your eyes. You're exactly right. And the fact is that if I had if I had succeeded in my my Ken Sharp quest, and and somehow despite it being a stupid idea, somehow I got a piece of the pie, I fixed the company, and we had a big exit, and I made my $2 million or however much. If I had done that in the time frame that I was doing that, um, I would have lost, if not all of it, most of it in, in, the, in the crash. Right. So, right. Pete, what, what advice would you give to someone like me who's building my business, which is tweetminer.net? And I've been building it for the last five months. And basically, it's a, a Twitter productivity tool. And ultimately, it's also going to be a Twitter and a Facebook productivity tool. So I'm mm-hmm. just really relying on that one one business. That's, the, that's kind of my project. What advice would you give to me? I would say to you, first of all, it, it's not really my area of expertise. So take take whatever I say with a grain of salt. Okay. But... First, you need good metrics. Part of the reason that we, we being my, my wife and I, knew what we were going to make at any given month and any given week, really, is that we were, we were keeping track of the important metrics, like sales volume, like, um, like net profit per book after transaction costs and advertising and whatever. Um, and, and I think that if you don't keep track of your metrics and your goals for those metrics on an ongoing basis, then what happens is you get bogged down in details that don't matter or you, get, you become frustrated and you get bored with, you know, t- maybe you have this idea that TweetMiner needs, needs 500,000 users and you have 1,000 users and you, you're not really sure how to make 1,000 into 500,000. And, and if, you don't have, if you don't have metrics that you can track and know where you're supposed to be at any given time, then it's very, dis- it's very discouraging and it's difficult to know what to focus on. Well, yeah, that's that, the most important that is exactly the, the problem that I face. Like it's how do I turn my 3000 users into 20,000? Yeah. <laughs> what I'd say to you is, is your metric is users. You need to, you need to track your users over time, like a traffic graph sort of, and you need to know how many users not that you want ultimately, but you need to know how many users you want next week or next month, and you need to work for that goal. Right. Yeah. You, you know, the the, the, the baby step, step approach is um, is a key as a key thing to think about because it otherwise it becomes an overwhelming um, prospect, and it's like um, in anything's a cinch, inch by inch, is something like saying like that. I mean, hmm. you know, it's like it's it's the kind of thing like say, hey, I want to lose you know thirty pounds. Right. At right. first, you're like, oh my god. That's like, look, I just want to lose a pound the first right. week. Right. Right. I mean, a pound. That's what thirty five hundred calories. That's five hundred calories a day. Okay. How long? You know, get on the treadmill or the elliptical for a half hour, and then maybe cut out that extra bagel. You know. Right. Well, exactly. Boom. Let me that's let me echo pound. something that you just that you just said. Uh, the five hundred calories a day and the thirty five hundred calories a week is a pound. Um, that's important to know. Uh, most people, when they start out, don't don't know that. So they decide they want to lose 10 pounds in a week without really researching and knowing what's feasible. It was obvious to me that, based on my background, it was obvious to me that 
$10 could be made on a blog in a month. So that right. was a perfectly reasonable uh, first, first month goal. And it, there's never been a time that hasn't been obvious to me what the goal should be and what the way to the goal is. And, and if you find yourself in a situation where you want to lose 30 pounds, but you don't even know what that would be like, you don't know, how to, you don't know what to eat, you don't know how to exercise, you don't, you don't know how many calories that actually equals, uh, you don't have enough information to make a, a, a plan that has realistic milestones. You need that information. You need to know that yeah. 3,500 calories is a pound. <laughs> Yeah, Jesse. You know? So let, let me. I want, I'm, I'm going to ask a couple questions because I'm about to forget my these. <laughs> I lost my pen and I'm going to forget them. So let me bring them up before I lose them because I I think they might be interesting. But you know, and on that whole weight loss thing. So like about two years ago, a year and a half ago, I said, all right, I need to lose about 15, 20 pounds. You know, mm-hmm. I've always been a fit guy, and somehow after we had a couple kids, I noticed that my wife hadn't gained weight, but I had. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay. And so what I, I decided to do, I was all right, well, I want to, you know, I want to drop, you know, 20 pounds or whatever. And I'm, and so I made an Excel spreadsheet and I said, all right, I'm going to shoot for a pound and a half a week. <laughs> and I'd weigh myself in every Sunday morning. And I, my basic plan was I was just going to try and burn 500 to a thousand calories a day on an elliptical. If that was my plan, it wasn't a, was anything, I didn't do anything with the diet. I said, all right, I'm just going to do this. Mm. And it worked, you know, once you start seeing, and what's interesting is because First time I'd start trying to lose weight, you're like, ah, you know, I'm playing, I try and play basketball a few more days a week or I'm trying not to eat. But it really wasn't a plan. It really wasn't repeatable. And I noticed, I'd say, God, you know, I'm not losing any weight, but I'm still like, I'll play basketball or kick, I play soccer, but I'm not really losing weight. But it wasn't, like I said, there were no metrics. It wasn't a repeatable process. It was sort of random exercise. Right. So, but then when I said, all right, I'm going to do X, I'm going to do 500 calories. It'll take me 45 minutes or whatever it was on elliptical. And then I would see, hey, I lost a pound and a half. And then another week. Hey, that's a whole, that's three pounds, you know. Right. And then it was four pounds. It's like then all of a sudden, what happened was not only did I realize it worked, and I could tell when I slacked off and I didn't do quite as many that you know minutes on the elliptical versus more. I started to get, I could tell what was working. Right. All of a sudden, I knew input versus output. It became very clear. And then what happened once I understood the inputs and the outputs, and I saw the progress on the on the Excel spreadsheet and the graph, it became empowering. I'm like, oh, I am now the master of this. Like I am now have control. <laughs> right. Whereas before you felt kind of helpless because you're like, God, you know, I, I don't eat that badly. I work out and I'm still kind of not, I'm still, you know, feel like I'm 15, 20 pounds heavier than I want to be. You know, that's just depressing. Okay. So just, just on, on that, on this thought, this is exactly how I feel about getting to 20,000, 20,000 users. What, like, could we brainstorm here <laughs> just to help me sure, in sure. my business? Like well, how, how, what, how should I think about it? What should I think? Like where, where can I get these 20,000 users from and what steps okay. should I take? First, let me echo Jason and say your, your weight loss experience with your treadmill is exactly what my experience was like in building this business. And, and I think the key components are you had a repeatable process, a thing that you could actually do that you could explain to somebody in a sentence. I'm going to get on the treadmill and burn X calories per day. Right? That's the first thing. The second thing is, or the which related I just worked, thing is, which by the way, I just worked backwards. I said, all right, you know, seven days a week, 500 calories, 3,500 calories, that's a pound, right? Right. So right. if I, anything above that will be more than a pound. And that's all I did, right? It was just simple math. Just try it. Exactly. And the thing, the, your repeatable process was directly related to your goal. You know that if you are on that treadmill until the, the digital display says that you've burned X calories, you know that at the end of the week, you will have lost 
a pound and a half because that's like it's physics. Right. <laughs> you, right. You know right. that there's a direct relationship there. So you had a process. You know that that process was directly related to the metric that you chose, which was your weight. So to you, Justin, I'd say your if your metric is users, you need to know what the process is that actually brings in users. If you know the thing that actually brings in users, or, or the the several things also, because I know it's a little more wishy washy than losing weight, but if you have an, an an actual tangible activity that you could explain what you're doing to somebody else, like uh, one one thing that we did early on when the stakes were were smaller was to get people to our reactive hypoglycemia site. We knew we wanted traffic because traffic meant uh, ad impressions and clicks. So what we wanted to have and and we wanted backlinks also so what we did was we went around places like yahoo answers and we we gave these really detailed great responses that plugged our own site for people asking relevant questions because we knew that places like yahoo answers were going to bring in enough people to achieve our goals our traffic goals for that moment we weren't thinking about 20,000 people we wanted 10 people from this one post. And we knew that if we made the post, we'd get the 10 people and we could go from there once we had the 10 people. So my question to you, Justin, is what activities, what tangible activities bring in users? Well, so far, I would say that just about all of those users have come in through Twitter. Okay. Like most of them. I mean, I've tried a, I've tried a number of different things. I've I've been on the front page of Entrepreneur.com, which has you know eighty thousand uniques a day, and it it just drove very very little traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done some some PR stuff. Um, if you type, I guess also I'm on one forty dot com, which is a, like a review of uh, a Twitter apps, mm-hmm. and you know got quite a few reviews on there. But once again, that doesn't drive much much traffic. Um, it just seems to be Twitter so far. Is it is it like an eighty twenty thing? The Twitter is eighty percent, and the rest of the stuff is twenty. Yeah, it's just people basically saying, you know, I like Tweetminer on Twitter. Understood. Well, uh, what what when did they say that? How did they find out about Tweetminer to begin well, with? Well, at, at first, I um, so it, it's like I set up an affiliate program, and basically forty percent of the of the three thousand three hundred. In fact, if you I don't, are you in front of the web right now? Are you, are you sure? Just type yeah. tweetminer.net forward slash stats. Tweetminer.net forward slash stats. So um, you can see the top line with the members there. Um, and right. basically f- uh, about just under 40% have come in through affiliates. But mm-hmm. I kind of ultimately made a decision not to go down the affiliate path now in the future because I think that it, it slightly brings a bad name to the product. Um, because the affiliates are not the quality that you'd like? It's too scammy for you? It's just that, I mean, I, I've got mixed feelings about the affiliate world. Like on the, on the one hand, I think the affiliate world's kind of good and I like the concept, but on the other hand, the kind of business that I want to turn Tweetminer into is more of a startup, like a traditional, uh, you know, um, Silicon Valley type of startup. I know it's not in Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, but, and I don't think that, that affiliate, you know, the, the overall branding of affiliate marketing goes hand in hand with that type of a company. So I've kind of decided to pull back, but plus also the margins are very low anyway for the, for the price mm-hmm. points. So, and the kind of fees that affiliates need would kind of take away from it. I have a, I have an observation for you. Yeah. When, when we, when we first began talking about this a couple minutes ago, your metric was 
was people or users. And uh, I heard a hidden metric in there when you, what you were just saying, it, it, which was your, your, um, your net, right? Your margin. Yeah. And so I think, I think maybe right now is your, I guess you're going for critical mass or m- maybe you don't need critical mass for this server, for this service, but, but you're going for a certain baseline of users that you can, you hope you can rely on, on being there and building off of. And, and my, my thought is, Maybe you should focus on that. Maybe you should say uh, affiliates are not a good short, are not a, not a good long-term strategy. But right now, they make forty percent of my users. They drive a lot of my of my traffic. And, and if it's the kind of traffic that you want, then maybe you need to instead of cutting them off, you need to say, "All right, right now it's working, and it's going to get me to my goal of." 4,000 users next month, just for example. And when I reach the goal of 12,000 users, which should be in four months, I'm just making this up, then I will stop the affiliate program. And I maybe, maybe what you'll do is you won't accept any new affiliates, but your existing affiliates can continue until they all peter out. Right. Or what have you. And that way you're, you're achieving your goal of, users and i know that you wouldn't necessarily be achieving your margin goal but maybe those goals are at odds and maybe your margin goal should should wait which is and the reason i'm saying that is because that's what that's what we did um most of our most of our margin early on was eaten up by printing costs we we weren't interested in or relying on any of the money that we were making um early on because we were spending it on you know, it was it was small enough early on that we one month was practically like a domain name or hosting for that month or um or the cost of getting a isbin for the book, whatever book we were making that month. So we weren't we didn't care about that. And if we had focused on that, we probably would have not bought an isbin or not bought another website, and that would have that would have stagnated our growth, which would and the, the growth was our primary goal at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot of sense. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it does. I, I, I'd like to actually make a couple analogies real quick. I've been dying to make one or two of these analogies, so let me, let me go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. these, are all, these are all great ideas. That's why I think it's, it's, so, uh, it's, it's so interesting. Um, one is this. It's that um, you almost think like an artificial intelligence machine learning. You have this algorithm that's trying to learn something, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and if it's an algorithm is learning something, you have something to evaluate its success. It's called an objective function, okay? Like an objectively right. rank, and maybe it's between <laughs> zero and one. Like how successful is this thing? <clears throat> and you know, you have genetic algorithms. You have all these little algorithms that are searching the space for the optimal set of parameters, okay? Now, one thing that they do at first is they, it's a lot of randomness. It just does random things. It searches randomly until you mm-hmm. get some information. Right, and so right. a lot of times the initial business is just a lot of random movement. It's a, a random, a random expenditure of energy. You're you're just you're looking for something, anything. You're looking for some kind of success, right? And then yeah. once you get something, you're like, ha You know, we struck gold. There's something here, ten dollars, right? Great. Exactly. You're exactly Let's, right. <laughs> now we're in this area. Let's hone in on this area. Let's put some more of our energy in this area. We don't we don't commit ourselves everything every 
every bit of her energy to just exploiting that one area, but just a small amount, and then you, or more or more than you would randomly distributed, and then you say, okay, we got more, and then you start learning. So it's just all about a learning process, like you said. But but you have to get out there early for one. Mm-hmm. And you have to create energy because if you don't do something, you don't get information back, right? So it's a feedback. Exactly. You have to do something to learn something about what's going to work. And, 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 and you can re- I guess that's the concept of minimum viable product. That's exactly. What, that's, what yeah. that's exactly. You have to go do something because you can't just read stuff in a book because that's not really sort of functional knowledge. It's sort of just exactly. like awareness. But the second thing is these learning algorithms are not going to work if the objective function isn't measuring what you want them to maximize. Yeah. Right. If you're trying exactly. to maximize some value, you need to be looking at the, the objective function is actually maximizing that value. Otherwise, it's going to maximize something else. So are you maximizing features in your product? Are you maximizing revenue? Are you maximizing users? Are you maximizing you know, your own happy? What are you trying to maximize? So make sure whatever you're maximizing, whatever your objective function is, that that's what you're working towards. And that's what I think um, Pete is really trying to emphasize, which is that know your objective function and make sure you're, you're getting the right data that's, that your objective function can be accurate. Yeah, you're exactly right. right. And the one other analogy I want to make, which is kind of, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I got to go off of this because I'm, I'm just going to hold this back for about 15 minutes, but it's just kind of, I think it's kind of interesting, <laughs> is that a, a friend of mine, I, I, was, I spent some time in, I've, I have spent a lot of my life working in the uh, financial trading industry. Mm-hmm. And I've spent a lot of time sort of building these like, artificially intelligent or at least automated algorithmic trading trading systems that would attempt to um, look for patterns in the market, short-term patterns, seconds, minutes, and uh, buy or sell, make money in sh- on right. the short term. And it's a very interesting game. It's a very te- uh, technically challenging and interesting game. And, um, but one of, the, one of the, the most interesting parts, I, I, one interesting conversation I had was a friend of mine who, who worked for a trading firm and they were very successful. And this was back in the 2001, 2002, 2003 era. And I had a little startup, and we were doing this automated trading stuff. And we had we'd done a lot of research and done a lot of statistics and thought we saw some patterns. And, he, and he, I would occasionally talk to him, and he's like, yeah, you know, Jason, you're just doing the wrong thing. He's like, I, I, I can't <laughs> tell you. I'm not allowed to tell you what, what you should do, but you're not, you're not, you're not doing it right. <laughs> right? And I was like, come on, give me a little... Give me some, you know, throw me a right. right? He's Point like, me in the right know. direction at least. Yeah. yeah, but he's like, let me let me tell you, we make money every day. I'm like, what? How is that possible? He's like, we never lose money. We make money every day. We close mm-hmm. out our positions every day. There's a bunch of traders, and they, they were just making sick money. Now they're a well-known company because they've grown so successfully. Right. But one thing he kept saying, he's like, and then later on, you know, I got a little more insight years after he left and he went on on his own and stuff. But he would say, he's like, look, the first thing you want to do is you need to understand if you, you, you go out there and you start trading a little bit, you just get yourself in the market, right? You're buying and selling by hand, not necessarily building algorithms, right? But you start, and when you make money, you need to understand why did you make money, right? Just because you bought Google now and then you sold it 10 minutes later, or you bought, you know, you know gold futures or whatever it was. Mm. Why? I mean, because it largely it's probably random, right? You need to really look and start understanding at a small scale. So sort of that search algorithm, right? You're searching around, just trying some random stuff, and you're like, oh, I made money, right? right? Can I do that again? What happened? Why did I make money, right? Understand it. And the hardest part, you know, is getting to break even where you're, where you're not losing money, right? Where you're yeah. just making a bare amount. And he's like, once you can start making $1,000 a day, it's a lot easier to get to the point where you're making ten grand a day. But it's really hard. To get that point without blowing out to make a thousand dollars a day. Okay, can I can I bring something in? 
Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, something that you speak about in some of your essays is creative itis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's something that, that, that Jason suffers from <laughs> mm. because um, he's he's been working on this this product, I think, for about a year now. Um, no, and- no, no. Come on. <laughs> Come on. He's Wait, exaggerating th- like crazy. He's like painting me out to be the wrong. OK, but hey, if you want to if you want to paint that picture just so they can make a point, go ahead. But then I'm going to correct. Well, to, to, to talk us through creative itis and, and how you think it's possible to overcome it. Hmm. You know, I suffered from it and still suffer from it to some degree uh, to <laughs> for, for, for a long time. And it was kind of the bane of my existence because I was never satisfied working. Like when I worked at a corporation, not, nothing's ever, you can never make anything for the love of it. You, everything's just sort of, even if you make something that you feel is good enough, they always force you to make it crappier in some way. So, so and, what um, is creativitis then? Okay. So cre- creativitis is, is the disease of perfectionists which is that a creative person like a programmer or an artist or a writer will continue to work on whatever project they're working on forever. And the reason is that whatever project they're working on is never quite as good as they think it can be or their vision for it is. And so they never release anything. They never show anyone. It's like it's like the... Um, it's like the cliche of the novelist, the hypothetical novelist who has his big novel and has been working on it for 10 years, but has never shown anyone it and will never, has never been published and probably never will be published because it's just something that he's tinkering away at and not showing anyone and not, not offering it for critique, not, uh, not writing a novel and throwing it away and then starting a new novel based on what he's learned but just continuously hammering away at this at this piece of creative uh this this creative product that will never be done because it's nothing is ever going to be good enough and that's creativitis and and the the short answer is there is no cure nothing will ever be good enough but that the the, the trick is knowing that that's okay because you don't need things to be perfect you need things to be passable and I, and I talk about this in in the article that incited this all about my my retirement article i say the the stuff that we were coming out with was was crap like last summer um we had a uh a couple sites they all had crappy free themes they weren't optimized the articles weren't even edited i mean i got to editing them a little later but they weren't even edited really so they had typos and and um there's no really cogent marketing strategy there was no strategy for adwords cuz we you know we didn't have any idea what we were doing with with ads but we were we were trying it and and so like everything about it was crappy i was embarrassed to show people it especially with my with my background as a designer and and i don't think i'm a good designer i think i'm i think i'm an okay designer i can i can make passable designs and i knew that this stuff was crap <laughs> and steph knew that her writing that was on these websites was crap, but our crap websites were still better than what was out there. Right. And having them out there, right. Having them out there is better than keeping them locked up indefinitely until they're perfect because they're never going to be perfect. And furthermore, even if you could make them perfect, you never even, you would never know what perfect is until you get feedback because people people ask questions about reactive hypoglycemia. So you could go off in this 
bizarre tangent that you think is really important, but that no one cares about and not, doesn't ever bring any kind of traffic. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't ever convert to any sales, but you, you have no idea because you're tinkering away and you think, you think you need something perfect, but you don't. And, and that's, that's creativitis. And the, and the trick to overcoming creativitis is to, and, and it's cliche at this point, but it's to release something like that you're embarrassed of. <laughs> you know, okay, let, let, let me say something about that because, you know, since, since Justin just uh, set me up. Um, yeah, okay. First thing, by the way, Justin, I'm going to release it into alpha this weekend. So I'm going to send it out to 10 I to don't believe it. Yep. You've been working on it for five years and <laughs> now, finally it's, it's going to be. 30 years, 20 hours a day. It's amazing. Come on. <laughs> I, I've been working on it mostly since ah, September-ish, you know, hour and a half a day. Okay. Okay. So right. maybe a couple hours a day. Um, <laughs> all right. It was before so, September. He's 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 telling Porky uh, stuff. And that was kind of an, a variation on it. We kind of changed a little bit, pivoted, and 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 okay. uh, went for something a little different. But anyway, okay. okay, okay. So the point is this. So I I was thinking about it, and and I was getting like, okay, I'll release it. But then I started thinking, God, like I, you know, because I'm, e- I'm I'm thinking of like the twenty or so people I'm gonna email who are mostly friends of mine. A lot of them are technical or entrepreneurs or some combination, and. And part of me was just like, God, I don't want to release it because I'm not going to blow them away, right? I want, I, like, there's that yeah. part of you that just craves people to go, wow, that is awesome, Jason. Right. That is unbelievable. That is so cool. Instead, I can just hear Justin go, well, I don't know. I don't really do much, you know, which <laughs> sucks, right? Because you know you're going to hear that. I know I'm going to hear that from some of my friends who are like, oh, well, I mean, you know, it doesn't do this and doesn't do that. And you got to do this. It's like, I, and, and I can hear myself, I know. <laughs> in fact, it will in a week. Or like, one thing that's frustrating is to hear people tell you that things that should do, which you already know and you thought about, you know, 15 yeah. minutes after starting a project, but it's just sure. so irritating. Yeah, I mean, it is. Fr- it, it's totally frustrating, and that's part of creativitis because you do want to blow everyone away. And you, and I think everyone, everyone who does creative work is sort of they have this little inner prima donna that wants to be that wants to be pet and and yeah. told how awesome they are. And and I think that's natural. I think that's part of the drive of creativity. Um, but <laughs> yeah, well, so that's the it's thing. Just, it's like, how do you how do you get over? I mean, so I'm forcing myself to like, okay, I just gotta, I just gotta realize that that's not gonna happen. That I, that it, that it's that's not important, right? It's not important that in the first couple weeks, a lot of my friends are 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 saying how awesome it is. What is most important is that I just get it out the door. And like, all right, great, Jason, good thing you got it out there, right? Right. That's but enough. but let me let me throw this in too. The, the reason you think that it, part of the reason you think that the reason you desire that is because you've seen that in your environment in the media and mm-hmm. and what i what i want to emphasize there is that it's an illusion this is an example that i like to use twitter became popular like a year ago maybe uh and everyone was talking about twitter and it's this big deal and what is it and is it something or is it nothing and will it make revenue whatever everyone was talking about it and it was this big overnight success but twitter was started in 2006 it's like four years old now these those those guys sort of labored away for three years before anyone said, hey, this is really awesome. This is cool. What is this? Right. There was a first version of Twitter that, that, they're, that, that they released in alpha to a couple of their friends, and their friends were like, what is this? I, this is like email, <laughs> but shitty. You know, like, and and they, they labored on it. They worked on it until people saw it and thought it was awesome. You know where I think I, – I, someone who I blame for this whole concept of, of kind of wanting to be – a rock star, and it's. I'm kind of slightly saying this tongue in cheek, but did you ever hear of Kai Power Tools for Photoshop? 
Yeah, yeah. It like that, that guy it. was the first, you know, rock star who basically built something that was really beautiful, really functional, worked really well. And he just seemed like, you know, that w- it, it just made you want to kind of emulate his kind of success. Right. <laughs> do, do you know his background? Do you know how long he was working on that or mm-hmm. how long he'd been programming before he made that? No, I don't know. I, I, that'd be interesting to know because I, I can virtually guarantee you it's very, very rare to find a story that doesn't go like this, but but Kai, he, I mean, you saw him at his peak most yeah. likely, yeah. And you've never heard of him since, have you? What no. is he doing now? I've no idea, no idea. Right, right. He, I mean, he probably labored away on that in obscurity for a long time before anyone noticed it, and before ever laboring away on it, he probably was a programmer for twenty years doing yeah. crappy stuff that nobody cared about. And, and, and that's, I guess that's part of um, the reason that I didn't think that what, what I'm doing now was an option is that there's no, you know, you want, you want to go to, um, to some conference and be like, yeah, I invented Facebook. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm that guy. I'm, <laughs> I'm the Twitter guy. I'm whatever. And, and, and yeah. but I can't because I, I can go and be like, yeah, I'm the uh, lots of, you know, mediocre blogs and books that you probably don't care about, guy. Nobody, you know, nobody wants to. Nobody wants to say that, and it's not sexy, but but it works. No, but you could you could still. I mean, to be honest, it would be it wouldn't be very hard for you to go down um, the similar path to someone like Joelcom. Do you, do you know of Joelcom? That do you, he's he's a guy who basically he he's pretty well. He's very successful. He's very he's he's done extremely well through essentially internet marketing teaching people how to internet market and just generally make money through yeah, the but, internet. But, 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 you know, he, but the thing is the difference between internet marketing, I mean, um, Pete is actually creating value as opposed to just, <laughs> well, I, I, as opposed to gaming a system or something. I which, will say that, but, but having a look at some of Pete's end end products, I mean, they're very, let's just say they're not a million miles away from sales letter type sites. To- totally not. And I'll be the first to admit that like, um, the statistics, how to.com is a site that we that we came up with that has a book attached to it. If you go if you go read the 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 page, it's very sham wow. I'm like I'm I'm sort of conjuring Billy Mays there and saying, you know, here's the the secret that the that your professor doesn't want you to know yeah, about. Yeah, that's 100% and, I mean, sales all, letter. All that stuff, all that stuff uh it works and and to me um to me the the line is not whether you're being um, not whether you're being cheesy, but whether you're actually delivering value. And I have to say, pro- probably out of all our products, and we have maybe a dozen or two, a little more than a dozen products uh, at this point, or, or properties, I should say, meaning blog book combinations. But out of all those statistics, how to is maybe our best one in terms of market fit, and that I. Strongly, and and I know I'm biased, but I believe, and I have been a statistics student in college. I believe that statistics how to is the best statistics, elementary statistics book that exists ever, that's ever been made. And and I have no product. Yeah, I have no problem with a hard sell that that seems cheesy to somebody who is is savvy about internet marketing. I have no problem with it because I know that when when a student gets it, they're they're going to say, "Wow, why, why doesn't my why doesn't the, my required textbook teach it to me like this?" I, every day, multiple times a day, I get emails from people saying, "This is I'm flabbergasted. This I was having such a hard time, and this makes 
everything easy. This makes perfect sense. It's not the product itself isn't gimmicky. The sales tactics may be a little gimmicky. Maybe maybe people who know what sales letters are like or are familiar with them or have been exposed to them are like, oh, it's just a sales letter. It must be it must be crap. But the product itself is not crap. Well, and, the world isn't, you know, this one. is just another example of how the world isn't black and white. There is all these gray yeah. areas. And so, and, and and that's interesting to me. And it, it is something I wanted to, to bring up to you was this aspect of how some of your sites were sales letter-ish, but yet yeah. they do have the value behind them. And, and, you know, given your background, like how does that kind of sit with your soul in the mm. sense of, you know, you originally wanted to be like a tech all-star, but, but you've ended up um, going down a different kind of road. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm fine with it. I, I guess I wanted to be a tech all-star for the wrong reasons, or maybe I should say I never really did want to be a tech all-star, because like I said, a year ago I realized I don't, I don't really like programming as a profession, and I, and, and I don't particularly want to be known as a programmer because I, I have more to offer than that, or I feel I have more to offer than that. And that's yet to be proven, but, but, um, it, being, being known as a person that uses sales letters to make his living, I, I'm better with that than being known, being unknown as a person who creates crappy internet apps in COBOL, you know, well, you know, and it's not just about being unknown. It's about by the fact that you can be financially independent or not. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, I mean, and and it's a it's an easy trade off, Justin. Between um, am I am I am I proud of the work I do in terms of the people that I help in in the markets that I'm trying to serve? Yes. Am I proud of the work I do in terms of going to a, to some big conference and, and bragging about and wanting people to look at the, to look at the specific stuff. No, but that doesn't matter to me because the point isn't to be, to be well-known for that. The point is to be able to do whatever it is that I want to do. And most, most people, uh, most people in general, and especially most people my age have almost no control over their time. No, they're they're, really, they're I mean, really stuck at 25. So let me, let me just ask you this. So, you, hmm. we graduated college at what, 21, 22? Yeah, actually, I never graduated college. I, I dropped out okay. when I was a senior because, because of family issues. I did really well in college, but I dropped out. Were, were, so, were you going to school in Florida? Is that how you ended up there? I ended up there when um, my, wife, <laughs> my wife lived here before she was my wife. And, of course, true, true to my geeky nature, we met online. So I ended up moving here. Okay. After, oh, because she's teaching at uh, at a college there in Florida, right? She she has yeah she she teaches at at a college here in Jacksonville, right? Okay, so uh, so you you know began your professional career as a programmer. What, how old were you? About twenty one or something like that? Mm. Well, it, actually, I began. If you if you want to be pedantic, I began working for a company when I was twenty one. Yes. Okay, it, but the reality is that I've been doing sort of freelance, small coding kind of stuff since I was, I don't know, fifteen or sixteen. Okay, and been an enthusiast before that, like you know, pretty much everyone. And um, I started getting into serious, or I I wouldn't call them serious now, but they felt serious at the time. Um, serious client facing, uh, small to medium business sort of. Uh, 
enterprise apps when I right. was 18. So by the time by the time I went and worked for um, Acme Corp, as I as I like to call it, um, I I had a lot of professional experience, both in facing the client and in solving actual problems with real code. So yeah, so you you had a pretty good perspective on on the on the profession of programming and software development before you just got it. It wasn't like you got out of college, you're like, okay, so now I got to get a job and learn how to become a programmer. You had a lot of experience with that. So that allowed you to sort of get, because it sounds like you developed your feelings about it pretty quickly within a couple of years. And that to the point where your last consulting gig, you, you decided to, after that, that you were going to move to a different direction. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, I really like programming. I program almost every day, but I program stuff that I want to program, you know, yeah. And on my site, you, you can find I, – I, I wasn't really sure where I was going with my site at, at first when I started it. And you can still find stuff like um, little JavaScript toys and, and that kind of thing because that's the kind of creative right. stuff that I, I like to come up with. And um, so I do, I do like writing code. I don't particularly like the, the profession of well, – Of writing code for other people. Right, I, mean, exactly. I can tell you as a consultant, because I, you know, I consult. I've been cons- I used to not really be a consultant. I had done a couple startups and stuff, and now, um, you know, I have three or four clients, and I'm juggling that. And you know, I love to program, but coding for other people, it's not very fun. I mean, I'm just like trying to get the get to the point throughout the end of the day where okay, so I've been I've done five or six hours of billing. Now I'm going to code on my own stuff. Then I'm really happy. Yeah. You know, yeah. so yeah, exactly. And you know, part of my part of my issue, I know some people have this sort of um, inhuman work ethic, and and I admire them for that. But part of my issue in the past has been I I don't feel like I have the energy to work on something eight or ten hours that I hate or or that I at least am apathetic about, and then yeah. and then come home and continue working on something. I mean, I I always intend to do that, but I never ever get anywhere. And that's like I said, part of the reason I never started my blog and I never worked on my on my side projects, because I'd have them, I'd have them on my mind, but when I actually came time to code them, I'd be burned. I'd be burned out. And I think that's pretty common. Uh, yeah, it's it's very few people who who can actually do the take the side project approach. But I, 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 I also think it's a combination of that and creativitis that mm-hmm. is just stifling to 99.9% of people wanting to yeah, start their own absolutely. business. Absolutely. And, and I guess that's why I count myself lucky that I was laid off which doesn't sound very lucky, but it gave me it, like I should have just had the courage to say, "Listen, I I need to change what I'm doing here because it's not it's not bringing me any closer to my goals, and I'm not happy with it. So I just need to stop, and I need to take take a risk and and find a different a different avenue or a different opportunity. And and I was kind of forced to do that when I was laid off, and um and that being laid off gave me this space to breathe, this space to think and and apply my creativity to. Um, to other uh, to other projects, and and that was important for me. Well, I think that happens a lot. I think you'll see that a lot of times when people have started companies, it's because they kind of had no other choice, or they got right. in a situation where it's like, okay, you know, it's it, it you know, you you got to figure something out now, and you better think of something fast. Right. <laughs> and yeah. um, so uh, just to get back to because I, I I don't think we quite finished up the story. So we got yeah. to the point. You jump on, you, you know, it's she's making your wife's making a few hundred bucks a month, and then you go, you start you know, doubling it, tripling it, quadrupling it on a monthly basis for a while, yeah. right? Start really right. putting in the time. You guys are working full time on it. And, sure. and, and, and the, so it wasn't like, okay, we've done this one blog, which is the reactive hypoglycemia, I guess. 
And yeah. then the then then you said, all right, well, let's. Did you start immediately going? Okay, the ebook's working for us. Now let's come up with other topics, properties. How many did you have? How well, many? Wait, wait, wait. He says he had twelve, right? Roughly twelve, a dozen. Um, yeah, give or give or take. There, there are uh, several in the. We have about ten in the pipeline that are a, kind of a different approach. So soon we'll have about thirty. But yeah, between blogs and books, we have between a dozen and two dozen. Right. Okay, but when you started, you had one. Right. And then when how we first started, one, we had one. How did it go? How did it evolve from one to two to three? I mean, was it like, we, yeah, what was, the, what was the process for you? We always had the idea that it would be uh, kind of diversified. And before I really started working on it full time, I had set up either two or three. I think it was three blogs. And initially, we didn't sell ebooks. We just sold, well, initially, we didn't sell any books. But when we first started selling books, we did it through. Uh, Lulu, which is sort of a crappy self-service, uh, self-publishing outfit. Right. And then we graduated to CreateSpace, which is Amazon's competitor to Lulu, which is um, a little cheaper, a little more, uh, a little more feature-rich. And then we moved to, once we started making the, the kind of volume that would make it worthwhile, we moved to a company called Lightning Source, which is what all the not all, but most of the self-publishing companies, uh, they contract with Lightning Source to actually do the printing. So we're going directly to them as publishers now. And, and, and part of the deal with Lightning Source and the reason people don't use it is that it's a little more advanced. You have to – there's no you know, pretty um, cover flash application and there's – you have to buy blocks of isbins and you have to pay us uh, – couple hundred dollars setup fee for every book and, and what have you. So it's not something that like a really non-technical, non-experienced person can use, but it's better if you're doing the kind of volume that we are. So right. we, we kind of graduated through that. And, and like I said, even initially, we knew that we wanted to have a diversified stream. So we started um, reactive hypoglycemia. We started Tietz's syndrome. We started another one. And, and we just sort of snowballed it from there because we figured, you know, if it, each one of these only makes you know, a thousand dollars a month, say in, in a year from now, each one of these blogs after a year of existing, will make a thousand dollars a month given all the different revenue streams they have. And if we have 30 of these or a hundred of these or whatever, um, then we're going to be making really awesome money, but we don't even need to be making that because all we need really need is five of those. Right. Um, you know, it, uh, it kind of reminds me that there was an article that was, or I don't know, blog post that that popped up about six weeks ago. I think, Justin, I think we talked about it, the guy who was talking about how you just have like a thousand or 10,000 different things that make a dollar a mm. day or something or a dollar a month. That was what, Max what, Klein. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, now what was it? Do you remember, what Four, was it? What was the exact number? 400. 400. 400 projects that are a dollar a day, yeah. Yeah, so that's a one extreme, right? Yeah. And the other right. extreme that I have one that, that just blows it out and makes everything. But you're kind of more in the middle, which is like, hey, you sure. know, you're not going to do 400, but you know we're going to be a little more diversified than one. We're not going to put all our eggs in one basket, especially yeah, exactly. since it's not like a piece of software that really takes years for it to reach some kind of maturity where you can say, okay, this thing is just it, – it is what it is. It works, right? It doesn't really right. need more because usually most software products that people are going to pay for need to be refined and worked on and, and improved upon added to for, for quite a bit of time. Whereas exactly. a blog, an ebook, or whatever, depending on how long or complex it is, it sounds like you can knock one of those out and – you know. Uh, I don't know how long it takes you, a couple months, six months, whatever. 
Yeah, it depends on the book, but but yeah, you're right. You're exactly right, and that's part of that's part of the reason. For example, uh, one thing that internet marketers like to say is that uh, membership sites are great because of the recurring revenue, and and I don't disagree with them. But membership sites require maintenance, and one of our primary goals. We didn't go. Yeah. My wife and I didn't get into this to start a company and spend all our time on it. We got into it to, um, to. <laughs> To retire, to work on passion projects. Every step we've taken has been um, with automation in mind. And anything that we couldn't automate or that would require long-term maintenance or any kind of significant maintenance, we've sort of shied away from. So uh, our books are are timeless, more or less. Maybe we'll update them five years from now or what have you. But um, our books are basically timeless. Our sites don't, they aren't topical they don't need to be updated frequently and uh, we don't plan to we don't plan to do any projects that need to be updated frequently um, because that wasn't our goal and, it, it, and I guess it's important to understand what your goal is at the outset when you start a project so right. like with Justin I don't I don't know if your plan is a big exit or or whatever or to work on a to work on a company or to parlay it into a CEO position at a different company or whatever, but I, I would strongly bear those things in mind and, and maybe even based on your answer, do research about what other people have done and what their real history and their actual step-by-step process was to get from where they started to where they are, which is where you want to be. Yeah. I mean, I just want to be running um, a web app with an active bunch of customers who like mm. the software and um, it produces enough revenue for me to live on so I can just focus on it full time rather than it being my side project. Right. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, there, I mean, there are certainly other people who um, who fit that bill. Patrick McKenzie comes to mind. He's the bingo card creator guy. Yeah. And he recently went uh, full time on his bingo card creator, which, uh, again, is a great example of something that he spent a long time building up that's not glamorous but that works for him. Um, so my question to you, Justin, is how, how many how many people who have achieved what you want to achieve have you talked to, you asked, you picked their brain? Um, well, I think we've had quite a few of them on the show, actually, <laughs> uh, and we, we've we've interviewed yeah, them. We've, and, uh, we've, talked, we've talked to a few. We've talked to a few, but yeah, I think I, I think he's someone we should have on the uh, on the show. It's actually someone's name I've written down. It's, you know, I'm thinking that we we should try and get in contact with them. I, think. Sure. I mean, basically, yeah, this show is just like free consultancy for me, really. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should be charging you for this. Wait, <laughs> you should charge Justin. <laughs> no, you shouldn't charge me. Free. You shouldn't charge me. <laughs> okay, we're bringing value to you as well as you bringing value to us. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's it's uh, synergistic. <laughs> Right. Oh yeah, synergistic. I love it. I used to work at Acme. I've heard that before. <laughs> um, no. But so, no, I mean you're an outlier though, because most people have have this pie in the sky. Like, yeah, I'm going to build this big app and I'm going to live off of it, and it's going to be a company. And that, but they've never they've never done anything like that. They've never talked to anyone who's done anything like that, and they don't have any any kind of um, real uh, tangible plan to make that happen. And I think that's important. And I think you, you at running this show have a leg up on other people well it was it, it was literally because of this show that i actually started doing it there's synergy for you yeah <laughs> right so is there is there now what do you so do you have any kind of plans going forward in the next couple of years i mean you said you have about 10 things in the pipeline um is is it something that you want to move beyond just you and your wife working on or is this something that you're more than happy to just do it at that level i mean is that because because here's the thing i mean when you when you just keep it with you know, small with, like I say, you and your wife, 
the good thing about it is like you could it sounds like you can you can manage it and build quite a revenue stream, but you don't have any of the headache of employees and none of the complications. Right. And you have right. all the freedom. Because we, we the reason one of the reasons that you want to do this is freedom. You know, I you want to have freedom. But there's the freedom that there's the sort of the almost a tyranny from above, which is people telling you you have to do this, you have to do that, and you have to be here at yeah. this time, and if you don't, we're gonna fire you or not pay you. And so it's like, ah, you know, you can't just say, Well, I don't want to do these things, otherwise I'm not gonna think come the mortgage i can't you know buy food or whatever right but there's also that tyranny from the right. bottom which if you have a bunch of employees and you have to manage them and if you go away you know things aren't getting done and things are getting screwed up and you have po- political yeah. problems and management problems and it's a whole other headache and it's sucking away your time and yeah. it's sucking away your energy and um you know if you want to say my what do i want my life to be i want to yeah. spend it being creative and free right yeah, and I've experienced both of those extremes, and you're exactly right. They're not neither one of them are are what I want. And um, to answer your question uh, two ways: first, we don't plan to expand to the point that we have, you know, employees and headaches like that. Although we do have subcontractors who do some things, um, but but you know, light administrative kind of things and bookkeeper and that that sort of thing. Um, but uh, the the other aspect to your question is what what do we want to do and that's um kind of a broad question but w- even when i was little when i was when you'd ask me if i was when i was about 12 i guess you'd ask me what 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 are you going to do when you grow up i i used to always say partially tongue in cheek but but really with some kind of naive optimism that i was going to save the world <laughs> that's what i used right. to tell people i'm going to save the world when i grow up and um it, exactly what form that'll take and and what that'll look like in the in the decades that follow, um, I have a vague idea of, but I don't know exactly. But that I mean, that's kind of my bent. I want to be a philanthropist, and I want to involve myself in worthwhile um, social causes and in uh, in socially conscious startups. Also, are really are really important to me because they uh, it's appealing because they're self sustaining. They don't require uh, donations. They're sort of they're good for society at large, and and they can justify their own existence financially, which I think is phenomenal. Um, I my to answer for my wife, if I if I could, she she has a big um, soft spot for animals, and we do we do a lot of volunteering as it is with uh, local animal rescue, and she wants to get involved in uh, legislating to um, to help animals and to prevent uh, animal abuse and all that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of stuff we want to focus on moving forward. And I think we're going to be able to because we don't have to worry where the mortgage is going to come from, just like you said. You know, what's a thing which I think is remarkable is actually the fact that you're 25. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know if Justin has struck Justin yet, but I mean, we're talking to a 25-year-old who sounds like he's 40. Yeah. Mm. Right? I mean, you, you really... Not only have you figured out a business that works, you know, mm-hmm. but you seem to have derived a lot of deeper philosophical um, understanding of why it works and what you want from it and, and these other things, which I think is great. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just you've done it at such a young age and you're able to put it in words. You're not just like, oh, yeah, I made a lot of money. It's awesome. <laughs> You're like, okay, you know, which is, you know, fine. And at 25 or even 30, you know, I mean, you, you might not expect much more. If someone actually does achieve financial freedom and they're young, you know, the yeah. fact that they become sort of philosophical and, 
in sharing those philosophies about why things are work or what you should be doing. I, I don't know. I, I, I just say I'm impressed. And yeah, secondly, totally. um, you know, it's interesting. So and you, are, you have two kids already, right? Right. So you're, I totally, guess... you're totally blowing Justin out of the water. I mean, <laughs> yeah. not only are you financially, but he, he doesn't even have kids yet. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's behind. So, I mean, what, what is, why are you so accelerated along this path? Not only are you married, have two kids, and are financially yeah. independent at 25. I mean, that's like what you do when you're like 45. <laughs> I mean, you're 20 years ahead of the game. So how did that happen? I mean, what um, is it about your thinking or your personality? I think, I think the short answer is in a essay that I wrote recently that you may not have read, but I, I it, it's the essay is called, Is Your Face Real? And the reason I wrote that essay is because people ask me all the time if my patch is real, my eye patch. And um, the answer is, yeah, but it's complicated. It, it very much is real. And, and the, short, the short version is that I was hit by a car when I was seven, and um, it profoundly affected my, my outlook growing up. Because, I mean, I died, and I knew it. And I, I really felt, even though I was only seven, I felt the gravity of, like, I've, I've been given... Uh, a second chance at life. I've been maybe even in a way born twice and I can't waste it. I mean, I, I have a, I have a, um, there's nothing, there's nothing to be afraid of. And that's, that's part of the, that was part of the fear and freedom essay is that it, when, when you're looking at death, when someone realizes they're going to die, they, they don't go nuts. They don't do crazy stuff. They do, they do exactly what they would have done uh, if they'd had the courage to do it to begin with, and um, they do it, they they are honest with people and they're honest with themselves because it doesn't matter anymore. Because in a month they'll be gone, and I think I had that realization that that most that if someone has it at all, they have it when they're 45 and they had cancer or whatever. And I had it when I was seven, and uh, I think it profoundly affected uh, yeah, the way I, I think I, about things. I, I I did read that article, and I you know I was. I was wondering, I was thinking about whether we should bring it up or not, because, you know, in some senses, it's not important um, because what's important is what you've done. But I think sure. it is really interesting. And when I saw a picture of you when you were a little boy and you had your essentially your skull crushed, I mean, it was heartbreaking. Right. I, was like, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, because I just think of my little kids, my son. And I'm like, oh, I mean, if, if that was if you were my son, I and it would just. I mean, it's just the unbelievable. It's unimaginable, and the yeah. fact that you lived, and the fact, and you wrote about a a doctor who was the one who really reconstructed your skull. Is that right? Yeah, then, Dr. Yakubov, right? Who then way go went on to at a certain point waived the fees because he ran and, and money to pay for it, and he just kept working with you and working on you and doing surgeries to help you fully recover. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's just amazing. That's, that's and then, so and, and, and um, so in a sense, I mean, it's a miraculous. I, I, I mean, I don't know how much you want to tell about the story, but uh, you know, you said you died. I mean, were you literally in the emergency room and, and your heart stopped beating and they and they or was just you know you were just in very critical condition for a while? No, I died. I died. And and actually, uh, the the doctors. I'm told I wasn't conscious for this portion, but I'm told by my parents that the doctors came early when I arrived at the emergency room and said, listen, um, you need to go say goodbye because he's not going to survive. And uh, on the off chance that he does, 
he's going to be profoundly retarded. There's no way around that. His skull has been crushed. There, there, it's impossible that there's no brain damage. And uh, that having been said, we don't even think he's going to survive. So you need to go say goodbye. And um, so my parents, it, it, and you know, later I, I made peace with, I, I, I died and I almost didn't come back to life. And uh, my parents had to have that realization also about me um, at that time. And it's, like you said, it's this, it's this really um, heartbreaking sort of profound thing. But I wouldn't, it, I tell people, and, and I stand by this, that if I could go back in time, like quantum leap style, and prevent that from happening, I wouldn't. Because it's really informed who I am. It's affected my entire life in a, po- a really positive way. Well, you, you know, it's, it was kind of amazing actually looking at you. <laughs> it's that, because you had that, that, that picture of you. When I, when I first saw the patch, too, I thought maybe you were just messing around. Sure. Because you know? a lot of times right. people take pictures of themselves and just, you know. Hey, this right. is one of your favorite pictures that happened to be at Halloween or we were messing around or whatever. But right. um, so I never, I, you know, I wasn't sure if it was, until you wrote that article whether it was real or not. But the second thing, I saw, I saw the picture of your, you showed it when you were a kid and in your, in your face actually not too long after it was crushed into you now. And mm-hmm. it's like, the doctor's amazing because you actually look like Ben Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> you actually look like a movie star. I mean, it's like, did a hell of a job on you, right? I mean, you're like a really, you know, you look like a good looking guy, you know, it's not like, oh, wow, you know. We have to feel sorry for the way you look now. You like, you know, it's like you, you, you did a really good job. You like you came through fine, right? Not only, not only you look like a movie star now, you're also probably twice as smart as you were originally. I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, he, I can't speak highly enough of him, and and he did, he did incredible work. He, he's he's definitely not a slouch. He um he's not a cranial surgeon he specializes in burns and hand reconstruction which is extremely intricate and um he he invented techniques that i can't fathom or explain to to rebuild me um because no one had no one with my level of injury had really survived before so there was never occasion to have those techniques and uh yeah he's Something about your sight. Um, there's there was some moments where I felt um, slightly reminded of um, Tony Robbins, and I, I don't know. I don't know if that's offensive or not, um, and I don't mean it to be. But what I mean, do do you see potentially some kind of future of public speaking and motivation and that t- that type of route? Possibly, possibly, and I don't. I don't take offense. I think I think some people think like, oh, he's you know he's just being gimmicky and like my about page, but you know, I've had, I've had a lot of people um, comment specifically about the kind of stuff that I say, like, um, you know, scorched and reborn and, and all, all this sort of dramatic language and um, about authenticity and all that stuff. And I've had multiple people comment now that um, they wondered at first before they got to know me, whether it was, whether it was true or whether it was, just sort of a gimmick, and and all of them have pretty much agreed that that it's not it's not a gimmick. It really is accurate reflection of the way I think and kind of um, the, my message and 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 how I move people to do what what they're moved to do, what they move themselves to do. So, to answer your question, it's possible. It's possible that um, people 
find my story or my message interesting enough to do that. But but it's I mean nothing's set in stone. Nothing's set. I mean if that if that's the if that's the form my world saving comes in and I think that that's the most good I can do then then sure. Well, I, you know I don't think you know being a motivational speaker or being someone I mean I don't there's nothing I don't think wrong with any of that. I mean obviously that's because people do a huge service to a lot of people. They people help mm-hmm. people fix their lives and reinvent right. themselves and, and gain confidence and control over, you know, what's going on. But yeah, that's fine. I mean, you know, the fact that you're 25, you've done what you've done and you've overcome what you've overcome is really amazing. So, you know, I think, I think coupled with the fact what you've done, you know, at this early in age, you, what you've been able to sort of achieve, you know, uh, uh, you know, create a successful business and, and all that is great. And that's impressive anyway, and especially at 25. But then, you know, the fact that you had to struggle growing up with, with, um, you know, with what happened to you, I think that makes it a, a really sort of inspiring story mm-hmm. uh, that's worth being shared, you know. Sure. Well, I hope it helps people. That's yeah. all I can really hope for. And, you know, and I know, I know some people kind of feel, um, they're kind of snarky about when they say Tony Robbins, you know, they mean like, oh, he must be kind of a shyster and full of crap because, you know, for whatever reason, Tony Robbins doesn't speak to them or, or whatever. And, uh, it's it's easy to be cynical about uh, work that other people are doing, but I I hope that it does help people, and I hope I hope that the people that it helps um, outweigh the people who are skeptical about you know what I am and what I write, and so. But I, yeah, just, well, just for the record, you, every, though, it's, it, it's authentic. <laughs> yeah, well, everything you've ri- written is. Is 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 uh you know none of it's really out there in the sense it's really about putting the other pieces and being thinking rationally and mm. and and not letting fear rule your your life and um you not letting cognitive biases lead you astray you know it's just uh, and learning right you know doing something sure. learning from it I mean these are all I, I think ideas or concepts that are uh, well understood by people, especially the kind of people reading your blog or listening to this podcast. So, right. but I think they're also the kind of things that are, that are always worth bringing up again and again, because we have these cognitive biases, we have these, these, these struggles that we have, these emotional, psychological struggles, creativitis or fear yeah. or, you know, sunk cost, you know, fallacy, things like that. And, and you, and because we have these bugs, we have to fight them every day. Right. You know, you're, there is, it's like, just cause you read about it and you understood it three years ago, doesn't mean that you're not still suffering from it or it's not still leading you astray. You have yeah. to every day wake up and say, all right, I am not going to suffer from creativitis. I am not going to I'll keep fear from. <laughs> well, it's almost know, like you have to monitor every single thought you have every single second of the day to kind yeah, of it's hard. force well, you your know, brain down a certain you know path. You know what you actually end up doing is, it, I mean, if you want to embark on that kind of thing, it's impossible to monitor every single thought. But what you do is you have a clear idea of what your metrics are, and, and you track them at, at reasonable intervals, and you reevaluate if it's not working, just like the business. I mean, it, it, it's all very much related to, and I, and I think my philosophy in life is sort of segues nicely into how my how I develop my business too. So. Right. What what like to just bring uh, up quick? You mentioned how your ideas are in line with the overcoming bias, less wrong um, blog, yeah. the the writing on there, and it's sort of a, a, a rationalist approach to yeah. things. I think I think it was it the guy uh, I can't even pronounce his name. The guy from Overcoming Bias, Eli. Eli. Talking right? about Elysia Uchowski. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he's he's at the singularity. 
Institute or what was that? Yeah. No, they Singularity Institute. Something at, at Oxford. Yeah, that's University. right. That's right. Yeah, and they, Singularity Institute. Yeah, and he's written some amazing stuff about you know <laughs> large scale artificial intelligence systems and all this kind of uh, yeah. stuff. And uh, but he's also very much, I guess, writing about what you talk about, which is sort of rationalist approach to life. Right. Actually, Eli's a big influence on me, to be honest. And and I read uh, he went through a period of about a year or two where he was extremely prolific. It seemed like every day, every day he published something, even on weekends. And each of those things that he published was so incredibly dense. And it was like every day reading the best blog post you've read all month, sort of. Yeah. And he did it every day. And they were, they were long, too. They're not quippy like Seth Godin stuff. They're, they're long. They're developed. And he did it, he did it daily. And I... I'm still in blogger awe of him, and I'm still very much influenced by um, by his approach and his sort of uh, clear-eyed, unsentimental uh, thought process. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've read a few of those in the past, and, I, not, and you've kind of got me interested in going back and rereading them. But one of the things I remember he, he wrote, which really stuck with, is the idea of putting in a overwhelming effort. Like yeah. putting in an effort to point let your life actually and the life of your entire family depends on it. I mean, yeah. that kind of an effort, right? That's like they a, will that actually was a great executed if you don't do this. And I can't remember the terms he put it in, but it was amazing. I was just thinking about it, like that kind of effort. You yeah. know, it's it's completely different than any kind of effort that you normally would say, Well, really put in hundred percent. Now are you in a hundred percent? Right. <laughs> like, exactly. Not even close. You know, I, I'm holding a gun to your head, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the trigger if you don't achieve this goal. Family in three hours, unless you, you know, you're like, what right. What would you be capable of doing? You know, in whatever 48 hours, it would That's be right. amazing. If, so yeah, so Justin, if, if you don't get 50 new users on Tweetminer, <laughs> Eli is gonna come to your house, yeah, and kill your family. <laughs> nice, or at least yeah. threaten to. I feel really motivated. <laughs> amazing. Isn't it? It is. It is. He'll he'll, he'll yeah. set up the spreadsheet for you and everything. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, we've we've. I think we, we've been going on quite a while. Um, we've yeah. we've done. Uh, we're coming up to two hours, I think, at this stage. Yeah, this would be about the longest podcast of all time mm. for us. But I have to say, it's been really interesting talking to you, Pete. I really have enjoyed it, and Very uh, much so. I'd like to actually have you back again sometime because I, I actually there's a lot of questions that I didn't get to ask, and I have a feeling you know you're you're going to be writing a lot more interesting essays that we're going to want to discuss well i'd love to do that because it was fun yeah well thanks so much for coming on the show wish you the best of luck with your business and with your uh writing and uh yeah we'll be in touch so i guess that's a wrap we're out